0: Hello, this is Justin from Mnemonic Recordings and the producer for We Eat Art. I wanted to thank everyone who's been supporting us on Patreon. It really helps. And if you want to join this month, we have an episode extra for members. Some special secret guests talking about Black Panther comics. From all the way back in the Jack Kirby days to the present. You really got to check it out. It's only for patrons as our way of saying thanks. You ran away from home in America after police (laughs) took your art. Yeah.
1: You buried the lead on your story here by skipping straight to the Corcoran. I'm John Mahins in New York City. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles.
2: Hi, everybody. It's We Eat Art a podcast where we talk to our real live visual artists
3: about really wasn't that good of a drawer. Like, it was definitely what I wanted to do, but I wasn't great at it. And I just kind of set my mind to do this in all my free time and try to kind of make every drawing better than the next.
1: This episode, we're going to talk to Ben Tallman
3: about growing up. The suburbs was always like my worst fucking nightmare. And I had so many kind of bad experiences with that, but For some reason, I started making this drawing of the suburbs I grew up
1: in, and it was a huge fucking project. Biggest drawing I had done at that point. And we're here with Ben Tallman, who is in Germany via Skype. Thanks for the invite. No problem.
2: We're in three different time zones today.
1: It's pretty exciting. What time is it over there, Ben? It's uh, 9 p.m. That's not too bad. None of us are living an excruciating life. You're a young artist and you make these crazy intricate drawings. You were born somewhere though. Where was that? I was raised
3: and grew up in DC but I was born in Utah.
1: So which part of DC you're from?
3: I grew up in the suburbs like Like, Silver
1: Spring. Oh okay. Was this during the Marion Barry crackhead mayor era?
3: Yeah that's when I was growing up. Yeah yeah. Through the 80s and
1: Definitely a lot of Marion and Barry stories. Murder capital of the world time period.
3: But people have forgiven Marion and Barry, I feel like. You know, he just died, what, a couple of years ago, and I feel like the city has a lot of love for him now.
1: It's hard to be mad at someone that entertaining and dead, you know? Yeah, You can be mad at them, but then afterwards it just seems petty. <laughs> Were your parents like, oh, Ben, go be an artist? I was born in
3: Utah, and that's the land of Mormons okay parents were super conservative they didn't really kind of put too much value on art when I was a kid drawing I didn't have really any access to art my parents didn't really expose me to art too much and so I drew all the time I loved to draw but I didn't really know too much about art and I never thought about it as a practical thing I could do like
1: was your dad a spy that's a pretty common thing for people living in, like, Silver Spring who have come there from the Midwest. <laughs> like, conservative dad from the Midwest suddenly moves to Silver Spring. Yeah. Often that's a spy.
2: As far as I know, just a civil engineer.
3: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: What kinds of things did you like to draw when you were a kid?
3: The more ridiculous, the better. A lot
1: of yeah. monsters and just trying to make up creatures and things like that. Did you do the thing where you would draw with someone else and you would be like, okay, I'm gonna draw a guy shooting your guy. And then he'd be like, I'm gonna draw a tank. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
3: we did do that.
1: That kind of space is still a little bit in those drawings. Yeah, no, I remember doing that for sure. During the arms race in DC, that was a popular pastime for children. (laughs) And your mom, was she a stay-at-home mom or was she a spy? Yeah, she was a stay-at-home mom. Okay but what was the first time you thought like, oh, art is a job you could do? That really kind of took me a while,
3: you know, like even through college, it took me a couple of goes at college before I was really like confident in just doing fine art. When I first went to college, it was for graphic design. You were playing it safe. Yeah, I wasn't feeling right. So I switched to illustration. That still wasn't feeling right. And so finally on the third go, I went to uh, art school. And
2: What was wrong with illustration? How come you didn't like that?
3: I don't really do commissions either. I just don't want to draw somebody else's thing. I'm really into the art for the creativity aspect of it and just for kind of building my own
1: world. And I just don't have any interest in illustration. So like me, you're a prima donna. I could draw your bulldozer, but I don't want to draw a bulldozer.
3: I almost feel like I would rather do a job that was completely unrelated to art rather than illustration. Too close to what I love doing, kind of muddies the
1: waters a little bit. Some artists are lucky in that they, early on, can get into an illustration job, which is almost exactly like what they would be doing anyway, and some people like aren't. But then after a while, everybody I know who's an illustrator is like, yeah, I gotta draw a lot of like furry commissions. Or, you know, like something else that's just like, I don't want to do this, but I have to do it for the money. Because it's like after the honeymoon period, it becomes difficult to do just that. You went to school for a bunch of things. Did you go to school several times? Where did you go to school? I started out at community college,
3: and then I went to San Francisco to the Academy of Art. Finally,
1: the one that worked out was the Corcoran in Washington, D.C. Okay. That's where I graduated from. Okay, I remember that one. So uh, you got out of the Corcoran and then what'd you do after that? Did you go straight to showing? It
3: kind of took me a while to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with my art. Once I got out of the Corcoran, I started
1: to take art a lot more seriously and I started to have shows. So are these people who had kind of seen you at the Corcoran, like had done studio visits or how did you run into that world? Just
3: getting to know people, you know, because DC is a small art circle. I had an art studio and and then I, you know, studio visits with people.
1: And so you started showing there and then were you also working at that time?
3: Yeah, I had a lot of unfortunate jobs along the way. We, we
2: love to hear about the unfortunate jobs.
1: A lot of times the unfortunate <laughs> jobs end up being like the secret link that explains all the art. No,
3: no, not with me. They're just all really kind of boring. They were flipping burgers.
1: You know, working in a giant maze. <laughs> <laughs> working in like the basement of an office
3: building, making copies and then taking them up to the cubicles and then going back to the
1: basement to make more copies for the office workers, that type of thing. Okay, but here's the thing about that. You could have made
2: a zine on the side.
1: A lot of people would have described that as like you were a clerk in an office, but you described that in terms of the physical spaces you were moving through to do the job. You're down here making a copy and then you do, 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 right. You walk up. <laughs> yeah, right. Like and in a little <laughs> another little box and then you describe, you know what I mean? Like maybe there is a connection there, yeah. I remember DC as being like especially working, like a job in DC was as a very kind of anonymous like it, it was like a very unsexy city in a lot of ways. And then when I got to New York, I was like, Holy shit. And a certain level of distance and anonymity hangs over a lot of the work that you do in terms of like, it's a, it's architectural distances. I don't know if you had like a Kafkaian feeling doing that stuff.
3: There is a bit of Kafka in it, I think. I guess maybe it's just my bewilderment of just life in the city and like a
1: maze sometimes. Your stuff got to be more about these complicated spaces as it went on. The early stuff was very carefully rendered but it could be different kinds of setups. And it seems like they've gotten more into being about the space as they went on.
3: Well, early on, I was doing more surreal stuff, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's just learning about things as I get older. As a kid drawing, my exposure to art was just whatever I could find, you know, comics, whatever else, and then going to the library in high school or something, but very kind of little exposure. What
2: comics did you
3: like? Well, it was hard to find good comics, you know, because so much different without the internet.
2: Your stuff reminds me of early heavy metal.
3: The breakthrough one, of course, was Chrome. You know, like once I found Chrome, I feel like everything changed. Uh, mm. Jim Woodring, huge fan of Jim Woodring. Uh, okay, yeah. He uh-huh. did like
1: Frank. I can see yeah. that. Who else
2: did you like?
3: It wasn't really necessarily that I was like huge into comics. Yeah. Oh, okay. Or that just like what I could get my hands on. I would say those are the two big ones for me were Prom and Jim Woodring. I was big into hallucinogens as a teenager, so so I went more down that road.
1: I was a big like Discord kid. Uh, I don't know if that was going on when you were uh, in DC, but were you like going to see bands and, and doing that whole thing?
3: That was going on, but I, I just kind of wasn't aware of it. So you're
1: just tripping.
2: He was home drawing and tripping. He didn't go see Fugazi.
1: By yourself with Mormon parents in DC, tripping is kind of an impressive feat. (laughs) Like you managed to score drugs without knowing anyone and being a Mormon.
3: (laughs) But the Mormon thing, when I was the tiniest kid, I just was never into it. I was always like super cynical. There was really never a point where that was my thing. I was always trying to get away from it in whatever way I could find.
2: That must not have made your parents so happy. Did you have some turmoil with them about that?
3: Yeah, it was pretty difficult for a while. It's on a different level for them because they basically feel like if you don't do what they say, you're going to go to hell. You know, it's such a kind of strange worldview. You know, it got to the point where I remember a time like I would draw drawings of naked girls and and hide them in my room and i remember the day my mom found them and she took my pile of drawings and marched me outside and like burned them in front of me and wow she literally
2: burned them like with a match and the whole
3: yeah yeah make <laughs> a point yeah later on she called the cops in to search my room when she thought i was smoking weed which i was
1: i'm really impressed <laughs> that you managed to score
3: the cops didn't find anything illegal, but they took all my sketchbooks for some reason. So I have no sketchbooks from or earlier, because the cops took all my sketchbooks. How old were you when that
1: happened? 16. That is amazing.
3: And then after that, I just ran away
1: from home, and then I was kind of done with it at that point. Wow. You ran away from home in America after police <laughs> took your art. Yeah. You buried the lead on your story here by skipping straight to the Corcoran so <laughs> tell us more you're 16 you ran away from home then what uh that
3: didn't last too long you okay. know because i didn't have any idea what the fuck i was gonna do i was just so mad that
2: to just go to the park or your, your cousin's house did I you mean, immediately... it, it took my
3: all my fucking artwork you know yeah. like it wasn't great art or something but no i just got a greyhound bus ticket and i was gonna go to portland I'd never been to Portland. I don't know anything about Portland, but it's just so like spontaneous. But then I quickly got uh, arrested and sent back and then I just moved to a friend's apartment. Are you gonna tell us what you got arrested for?
2: Or is it a secret?
3: No, I was just arrested for running away. Oh. They were waiting for me at the Greyhound station on the other side.
1: Oh, I was it that one Greyhound station right next to the metro in downtown DC. No, no, in in Oregon. Oh, you got all the way to Portland. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Did you buy it with a credit card? Like, how do they know you were going to Portland? I don't know. Or they just have cops everywhere in America at every bus station. They were like, this spy's kid has escaped. And we don't know what he knows. (laughs) But we know these drawings are full of rhinoceroses and naked girls. And we got to get him back. Are you Daryl? Yeah, maybe my dad was a spy because they were right on that. Did had you mentioned Portland? I really don't know how that went down. I mean, maybe right. Portland just like has cops at the bus station waiting for runaway art students from all over. I can see that. <laughs> and they'd be like, does he look like a stripper? No, you're going home. <laughs> What's your relationship with your
2: parents like I'm now? I
1: still have my mind blown that you got all <laughs> the way to Portland. No one knew you were in Portland and the cops were like, Oh, it's Ben Tallman. Yeah, I don't fucking know. Oh my God. <laughs> all right. We're going to call his
2: parents after this and get the full investigative report.
1: You don't ask about people's parents, what they're doing now, because half the time they're dead or insane. or and it was really traumatic and it ruins the interview, John. Remember.
2: Uh, we don't learn. Ah, It's
1: true. Okay, so you ran away, you got caught, you lived with a friend. Was the friend like Johnny Five? Who was his friend?
3: <laughs> yeah, just uh, I was working at a copy shop and just one of the guys I worked with just moved in with him. And so I just dropped out of high school two years early and then
1: just worked for a bit and then went to school. <laughs> was it Xerox or was it Kinko's? Kinko's. Okay, because the Xerox in Silver Spring, I know well. Can you truly say that the, the impetus
2: for this was that the, the cops took your sketchbooks? See, now I'm harping on it. <laughs> there was a lot of
3: kind of drama going on at that time, but that was like the final- it was the icing
1: on the cake. <laughs> we have like three kinds of stories on this show. One of them is that story and it happens like, it's not that bad though. Like my parents didn't know anything about art, they didn't like art, they were very religious, and now I make crazy art. People sell that, but they don't often have the police take their sketchbook away. Like, that's extreme. Yes, they first. also don't have the police at every bus station in America waiting for them when they get away.
3: It was a legit pile of sketchbooks, too, because I always had a sketchbook since I was a little kid, and they just took the whole fucking pile. <laughs>
1: that's so fucking... despiteful dicks. If you were a different kind of artist, and maybe a worse artist. You could go and be like, my art project is a record of me calling the Washington, D.C. police or so it was the Silver Spring cops, PD and later. trying to get back all the sketchbooks they confiscated. And then eventually it would end with like a giant, nice, large format photo of like this giant archive they've got in the basement of all the art that they – stole from everybody <laughs> they got like all yeah, cool where, disco dance I with that right where do they keep all that yeah they're probably oh this shit is good man because you know how cops are like they confiscate things and they're because they're like these are cool
3: the only things they took they didn't find anything illegal but they took anything that had to do with art like all my sketchbooks And anything that had to do with music. So all my CDs, posters, anything to do with rock music, they took all that.
1: But you weren't into the local scene a lot. So what was the music they took? Was it, like, just Hendrix and stuff? Like, what's going on?
3: It's, like, you know, fucking Nirvana and Nine Inch
1: Nails, you know, and Tool. But, I mean, like, if you go see a band, there is, like, always, like, two or three, like, off-duty cops there with, like, big, like dolphin tattoos, and you're like, how'd you get into this band of this people 15, 20 years younger than you? And you'll be like, oh, that's how. Like, this explains everything. Like, this is the Rosetta Stone. My dad was a cop. He never brought
2: home anything confiscated.
1: Yeah, he didn't tell you, John. Like, he didn't go, oh, yeah, I have been you know, stealing from children. He totally would have told me anyway. I feel like we're going to talk about this for two hours. This is blowing my mind. All right, anything else, like, crazy kafkian happened to you that you didn't tell us about
3: that was probably the worst of it once i got out of the corcoran i really wasn't that good of a drawer like it was definitely what i wanted to do but i wasn't great at it and i just kind of set my mind to do this in all my free time and try to kind of make every drawing better than the next and there's a lot of drawings from back then i'm a little bit embarrassed about you know i mean yeah you're just out of college i made a whole kind of range of stuff i would draw things like comic a lot more than than kind of what i've even shown people but then it's weird like the track i'm on now kind of started in a really weird way maybe like six years ago my dad died and then my mom was selling the house where i grew up in silver spring maryland and growing up the suburbs was always like my worst fucking nightmare and i had so many kind of bad experiences with that but For some reason, I started making this drawing of the suburbs I grew up in. And it was a huge fucking project. Biggest drawing I had done at that point... Took me six fucking months to make this drawing of the suburbs I grew up in with the like Mormon church my parents made me go to.
1: Oh, did you go to that massive Mormon temple that you could see from the highway?
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's not the temple, but it's the church right next to it. Okay,
1: just for people who don't know, there's this building that you can see from the highway in D.C. It looks like the Crystal City from The Wizard of Oz. It looks like no other building that you've seen. It's just like it's made of this white like glittering mother of pearl looking stuff. You look at it and you're like, wow, holy shit. And that's like how you learn what a Mormon is in DC. Cause you drive past that and somebody goes, mommy, daddy, what's that? There's a golden angel on top. I mean, it looks like nothing else I've ever seen really. It's not in an identifiable architectural style. I suppose it's like technically like twenties kind of an art nouveau art deco kind of pre-modernism. It's a sci-fi spike.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah,
1: they definitely go
3: over the top with
1: it, and you can see it from the highway. And you go, "What's that?" And they go, oh, "That's the Mormon church." And they're like, "Can we do that?" You know, instead. And they're like, "You don't want to do that." They have like twenty wives, and you're like, "Wait." The overpass that you see as you go past it, someone had spray painted "Surrender, Dorothy." And yeah i did see that it, yeah. it was there for years i so you went to that thing okay yeah all right but you're not allowed in there there's a church next to it i never actually went in that so that building is like special is that where like all of the you know talking to the angels with the plates goes yeah on?
3: yeah just there's secret ceremonies and all that but you're not allowed in that unless you're get the special permit that's some high level
1: pr right there yeah yeah okay this is all coming together the spy thing <laughs> you're daryl you live with Johnny five making copies of yourself all right okay
2: you were telling us about this huge drawing you did um, yes what, what was the size of this huge drawing
1: like 80 by 50 inches that is a big drawing that is like four regular size posters but
3: the scale I was doing it, it took me six months. Before that, I didn't know exactly what direction I wanted to go in. You know, I was doing different kinds of stuff, but that was like you know, six years ago and that kind of got me on the trail I'm on now. I did that suburbs and then I kind of moved from that into exploring the kind of city and doing different things with the city.
2: So you started to draw things about how you felt about the suburbs, your disdain for it, your feelings about the suburbs. I had such
3: a kind of miserable time in the suburbs but then you know I spent six months on this drawing and there's in all of this stuff that I really kind of don't like you know I would never live in the suburbs. I got really kind of invested in like looking at all the people's houses. I drove back to the neighborhood and I took pictures of everybody's house in the neighborhood. And I got really into what kind of lawn decoration they put out front and, you know, the people who leave their Christmas lights out and just all the kind of peculiarities of the individual homeowners, even though all the kind of homes are the same like tiny starter home box structure. The weird peculiarities of people in their environment.
2: The suburbs for many people are, are, are a Mecca. You know, from for my dad, who grew up in, in Harlem, it was his dream to be in the suburbs. You know, and then me growing up, I'm like, this is a weird place. And my dad was like, this is the best place you could be. Yeah. Like, really? So it's, it's funny the things that you mentioned, like why are Christmas lights and these plastic flowers in front of your house and these lawns and houses in rows, why is this the best place you can be?
1: In D.C., I didn't really grow up in the suburbs of D.C. I grew up in the middle. It was kind of like in parking lot town. But the suburbs of D.C. are distinctive in that a lot of people come to work in the federal government or work for the many industries that serve the federal government or work with it, like yeah. newspapers, contractors, you know, stuff like that. And they come from all over the country. And rather than like in other cities – where people come from where they are to live the life of that city. Like people go, oh, I want to live in Chicago. I want to live in New York. They become a New Yorker. They become a Chicago person, and they live in the city in apartments. A lot of what happens in D.C. is somebody with a lot of money goes, oh, you, with these skills, you can move your family to D.C. They have a house. They have a kid, a wife, like their whole family is moved into one of the suburbs around D.C., those people kind of try to import their life that they had in the Midwest to the exurbs and suburbs of D.C. And so there's people from all over the country. And so there's a Mormon church and there's a Pentecostal church and there's a Catholic church and there's like all these different communities. And it doesn't have that divided up organically growing ethnic enclaves thing that bigger cities have it's
3: a lot more transitional than most cities people come in for a job that's going to last a few years and then leave it's got a lot of turnover and it's a completely different city now than the one you grew up in now dc i don't know if you've been back to it they tore down whole sections of the city and just put up whole new condo buildings there's
1: young couples in areas you wouldn't venture into five years ago. Now, I found it in an intensely oppressive environment. Like I really, really did not like it. And it sounds like you didn't either. But I ran away and made art about being a bohemian person in the big city in New York and then LA. And you made art about that repression on some level that difficulty it seems like your line is very controlled in itself like these seem like planned drawings where if you accidentally spill some ink somewhere you don't just cover it up you physically like have to like get rid of it or throw away the drawing am I right
3: yeah but all of my drawings not all of them but they're all very kind of careful and meticulous, but they're all what I don't like in some way. It's this weird attraction. Like I don't draw any kind of attractive architecture. I just draw kind of ugly architecture and things like that. But within that, there's still a kind of certain attraction.
1: I mean, I, I, you know, where you're on the show, we're like, yeah, this guy makes cool drawings at a certain distance. The ideas around it, the ideas that create that architecture and that space are interesting. And so by taking a bird's eye view of it, like living in those houses and walking around in spaces with those incredibly unimaginative DC buildings is excruciating, but looking at the forces that shaped them and how they got that way is interesting, and I feel like your distanced view is kind of a way of abstracting them into what they're about rather than you know the experience of being in them
3: yeah yeah i think that's about right once you have a certain distance and you can see it as a a third party and why are these things like this you know like why do they have this line of dumpsters here and the, it's gotten to the point where I, like anytime i go around the city i always kind of just take pictures and the most of what i take pictures of are dumpsters and the way this drain valve it works is kind of interesting and why did they make this construction set up this way Mm -hmm. a lot of my photos are just construction because it's been so endless in dc
1: there's one drawing that you did of a parade it's called parade and it's like an intersection, which I rec—I don't recognize the intersection, but I recognize the style. It's like this utterly characterless line of buildings leading to an intersection. All your stuff is in black and white, and I feel like there's a lot of ways in which DC is a black and white city, like the downtown DC, because there's all that marble. So this is this intersection, and then there's this parade. And the parade, it's weird, but it's two other things. It doesn't dominate the picture, like the buildings are bigger than the parade. And it's not like a real parade with floats and stuff. It's like a bunch of people walking and then there's like some sort of freakish elements, like a guy with a giant head wandering through. And it seems to really capture that idea of like, hey, there's something weird here, but like the permanent thing is the utterly oppressive space.
3: Yeah, we're just trying to find like so that that parade. I'm actually leading that parade in the drawing, and that's uh 14th Street in DC. That's like the corner of 14th and P, right? Okay, but even now, I made that drawing what seven years ago, maybe? Yeah, and that entire street is in 100% different now, like Mm. it's all condo buildings, and that's the main kind of new restaurant street now. So every single building that in that drawing is like hundred percent different now. It was bad in one way then and now it's bad in a new way.
1: (laughs) You got like these drawings of animals. There's one of this rhinoceros that's made of other animals, right? In DC, there's like the great zoo and it's free because it's a tourist town. All of this bad commercial art about the zoo for kids, you know, like And I imagine if you had a childhood even remotely like mine, you saw thousands of those. You'd see like, oh, it's a giraffe in front of a rainforest, or it's like a parrot made of parrot. You said you were looking at crumb and stuff. Some of the anonymity of tourist maps end of like that kind of commercial art that's like trying not to be offensive your work doesn't do that but it adopts some of the conventions of that stuff
3: everything kind of seeps in in ways you don't even realize you say dc is a like family friendly city and it's like that in certain areas where tourists go and everything else is like crime and
1: yeah murder capital of the world
3: right but I've started to incorporate that in my drawings now. I don't like them to be a specific place. You know, I don't like them to be like D.C., but I pull them all from my photos or places I've been. And what I've been putting in more now is, you know, not necessarily the bad commercial art you were talking about, but more sort of bad advertising so I'll put the billboards just like they are in the drawings, and they're all yeah. kind of really terrible. I'm kind of interested in anything that's terrible. Why? I want to figure out, like, why it's terrible. Like, why did you make that choice?
2: You had a billboard that said Beefy Cheesy Glory. Is there actually a billboard with a burger that says Beefy yeah, Cheesy Yeah, that's glory? a real
3: billboard just like that. I didn't
2: change huh. anything. That's exactly
3: what
0: I'm talking <laughs> I about. You made like, it
3: up. <laughs> who had that graphic design job and who approved it? You know, like right. I'm really interested in that. Like, why these terrible spaces happen and these bad ideas that people have? Not even over the top bad, but just like, why would you do that?
1: The newer drawings they look kind of like Brooklyn from the train. A lot of them. And then some of them are like these sort of like made up architectural spaces, but they have a similar carefully drafted line.
3: A lot of it really is Brooklyn because I do I do spend a decent amount of time in New York just because it's so close to D.C.
2: Why don't you just move to Brooklyn like all the
3: artists do? I mean, it's no more <laughs> expensive than D.C. is. So.
2: I can't imagine you going anywhere, though, because a big thing of your drawings is like a million... Bricks. you draw every single brick, there's 10,000 leaves. You, you must just be at home at that drawing table all day, all night.
1: I draw all day, every day, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. So do you like live in DC to keep close to your muse or you have like people there? Cause you are like, I draw things that are terrible. So like, why are you still there?
3: I have a kind of situation where I have really low expenses which is yeah. working out. But I, I actually am interested in kind of leaving D.C. I've been traveling around for a while. Like last year, I spent pretty much the whole year in Sarajevo,
2: mm-hmm.
0: traveling oh, around
3: wow. Europe some. And, you know, now I'm doing this residency in Germany. So I'll be here for three months. And it's kind of just got me more interested in finding a way to just like travel around. Or How did you end up in Sarajevo? I just worked out. There was somebody I knew with an apartment that wasn't being used that I could just stay in
1: just kind of opportunity, so why not, you know? Sounds like a good deal. So there's galleries in Washington, but I mean, you were not just confined to showing in that scene. At what point did like other people start to notice you in a larger art world? Because if you're living off your work now, then you must be showing someplace besides there.
3: Well, one thing that was really huge was last year, Aesop Rock did an interview with me in Juxtapose Oh, okay, cool. That was like the first kind of real good like national exposure I've got. How did he know about your work? I don't know. I I never asked him and (laughs) found it online, I'm sure, or
1: something, but yeah, I don't know. So, you just got an email from him out of nowhere? Yeah. Were you like an underground hip-hop guy? Did you know him at all?
3: No, I'd I'd heard the
1: name, but I didn't know who he was, no. And then he was like, yeah, I want to interview you, and you were like, okay yeah yeah that was basically it (laughs) that's awesome although (laughs) if we have like a east coast equivalent of the west coast laurel canyon conspiracy which was all about defense contractor dads leading to like rock star children then this could all be part of the larger conspiracy (laughs) but that's nice if it was last year and it was aesop rock were you like wait is it aesop rock or asap rocky because that would be a confusing Google.
3: A lot of my friends knew who he was. Okay, like I, had, I didn't listen to him, so I found out quick. But that was great. That was really cool that that happened. And then I got a couple shows in New York after that. Where in New York were you showing? What galleries? I had a piece in the Booth Gallery. Mm-hmm. And then I had a bunch of work recently in a
1: show at uh, Jonathan Levine. Cool. Your earlier stuff, like you were saying, was kind of surreal. If we just apply a sort of broad brush label like surreal, we're not going to get to the point, I feel like. The early stuff was surreal in the sense of, like, there were ideas that were not were from real life, injected into a carefully rendered realism on some level. But your newer stuff, and a lot of it is in that cabinet perspective or is it orthographic perspective, but the newest stuff Isometric perspective. Is it isometric though? Where nothing ever converges. Okay. I mean, you'd know, right? That's all you do. Yeah, that's (laughs) isometric. (laughs) Okay. But now I'm using real perspective more often. Well, here's the thing. I feel like your older work used that perspective in a lot of those things, but it, it was about a surrealism. Whereas it seems like the newer stuff uses that perspective and some conventions of like architectural rendering and stuff like that in order to make art that is about construction and it is about the constructed landscape, like you have ones is like isolated cubes of buildings or building like structures in space Yeah And so they seem to more like the lines and the, the compositions don't come out of I'm going to make something look real and then make it weird in a surrealist thing, but more like the drawing comes out of the kind of careful architectural or product-like rendering that you're doing. This is about how these like little cube spaces are the same size or they're slightly different sizes or these cells. It's about how do I populate each different cell?
3: Yeah, I feel like I never stay in the same place. Like when I'm making a drawing, I very rarely have the idea in mind. It's always like I'm trying to find something. Mm -hmm. So I'll become like really interested in a particular idea, particular thing about whatever, and I'll explore that, but I won't have an idea about what I'm building. I'll try to find it through the process of drawing. And that's how the creative process works for me. It's never like sitting there thinking about, oh, what should I draw? But it's like being engaged in the process of drawing. It's kind of an uncovering process or a searching process to try to figure something out. And then I do a few drawings trying to figure out a kind of particular thing I'm interested in with a construction of the buildings or whatever it happens to be. And then I'll feel like I have that covered and my interest will move on to something else. And so that's kind of more how my process works. Do you do
1: pencil and then switch to pen?
3: I do very little pencil work. You know, I'll have to do the kind of architectural stuff in pencil first but never over the whole composition. I always just kind of start in a particular place and fully draw a really small area that will kind of limit my possibilities. And I'll just kind of add to that the next day and then add to it. And my pencil work is just very rough. It's just enough to give me a compositional idea and the size idea, but I, I just never, was really a sketcher i never really used pencil ever like drawing growing up it was always just going in straight with the ink well
1: i ask because you have on the one hand you're describing like a very improvisational way of working on the other hand the actual drawings are very controlled and like i said it seems like the kind of thing where if you accidentally smeared some ink you wouldn't just cover it up in the picture you would have to start over or something so That's like really interesting that you're combining, like improvising with like these super clean lines, which seems hard to do.
3: Yeah, I really liked working that way where I kind of have the construction and then everything else is really organic. I really enjoy that contrast between the organic and the rigidity of the architecture. With all my drawings, I'm doing something different. But with some of the drawings, it's been really kind of nothing but that sort of contrast with the rigid architecture and then just these weird organic forms.
1: I wanted to ask about the more recent ones, like the Sarajevo drawings, have these Cthuloid or lumpy biomasses and shapes coming off of them. Do you just think, hey, that'd be fun? Or like, like let's creep people out. What are they for you?
3: You know, it's like a specific environment. So separately, there's a story that builds with it. But a lot of it really was about that juxtaposition of the organic forms with the architectural forms. And I just really loved
1: playing with that juxtaposition. It also seems to be something about the scale that you're working on. Because when you have this scale where the buildings are so dominant, you want to work in something besides a bunch of buildings In most cases but at the same time it's hard to create an object which is going to compete with them visually if you draw like a a certain number of buildings and you then just draw people in them the people are going to be so small that a lot of times you can't read those details as part of the composition there's something you'd have to notice when you got up close to it whereas the the bio shapes are something that can kind of compete with the architectural space
3: yeah exactly it's hard to have something else on that same scale
1: it's like yeah if you like take a picture of the manhattan skyline you don't see like tons of little people running around you see like yeah, yeah. it's mostly looks like the buildings. so you've got to kind of invent something or introduce something that is a different one you did one drawing called restricted which is like super yeah. simple it's just two brick walls facing out on an empty landscape with like a velvet rope in front of it, which seems to be way more conceptual or minimal. Did you draw it and you go, okay, I'm done. That's perfect. Or were you like, I'm not sure about this. Maybe I should put stuff in here.
3: Yeah, no, I was actually really happy with that when I finished, like I've really been trying to quiet my drawings down recently. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just about trying to always find something new. I have no interest in being stuck on a particular style or a particular way of working. Yeah. For me, when I'm drawing something, it's always about trying to learn something, trying to figure something out. And so when I do a drawing like that and I break out of my habits and it works, I'm usually
1: really happy with that. And with that drawing, I was pretty happy with the result. Uh, were you surprised <laughs> to see when it was finished? Or did you know ahead of time it's just going to be this kind of thing?
3: I almost threw it away. I was like halfway through a brick That's wall. Was the way it works. <laughs> I was halfway through a brick wall and I was like, oh, this one's garbage. And I was going to throw it away, but I just stuck to it. I definitely doubted it the whole way until it was done.
1: Did you have the idea to begin with and then execute it?
3: I had the two brick walls in mind, and then I didn't know what else was going to happen. I wanted to build that kind of space with these two converging brick walls Mm -hmm. and then something else. And that's usually how I'll start. You know, I won't know what the thing is that's going to make it work, but I'll just start and then resolve that as part of the process. So that kind of compositional structure I had in mind. I was gonna put something more like what I normally do in there, that's the way I work. This is my starting point with this building or these two people relating to each other and I'll draw one thing and then I'll know that I need to resolve this other part, but that's always a process thing. I very rarely have the whole thing in mind.
1: I was recently in Croatia and I kept looking at buildings and being like, these don't look like American buildings but it's hard to describe why. Something about like the depth of the way that the windows go in and the moldings come out and the doors go in and how much decoration there is on. It's just everything is slightly different. You know you're on, an, yeah. uh, on a sort of modern European block rather than a modern American block by these subtle signs of, that are sort of stylistic. And I feel yeah. like... Some of these Sarajevo drawings are kind of about that. They don't have all of those things, but it looks like someone who's like looking at these buildings, trying to figure out why these anonymous buildings of this place are not the anonymous buildings of the place they came. I don't know, is that a feeling that you had?
3: Yeah, it is kind of like that because I didn't,
1: so those drawings,
3: they're all influenced by my time in Sarajevo, but they're not about Sarajevo. Right. They're all very different drawings, you know, it's yeah. not—it's not kind of a cohesive series. It's all kind of exploring something else. But with each one, I, there was something I saw in Sarajevo or something I was thinking about. A lot of it having to do with architecture. It would always be something like that. Like I'd go to a particular place in Sarajevo and I would just look at a building and try to think, why is it this way? A lot of it, too, is like the... Sarajevo more than any kind of other city I've been in, I think was just completely covered
1: in graffiti. Mm, Yeah.
3: Was it good graffiti? No, all really bad graffiti.
1: It all says like, you know, Serbs go home and (laughs) right. Like it was a war zone.
3: Well, the war is 20 years ago. So there's a little bit of that, but not too much. So one thing I'm always intrigued with the architecture is I like the character of it and the things that have happened to it because of time especially with the graffiti you know i like just looking at the graffiti and thinking about like why did they make that graffiti like that and so when i put graffiti in my drawings it's usually just taken directly from the buildings i usually don't make it up but i'll just whatever they wrote on that wall i'll write the same thing in my drawing
1: i mean usually like it's it was 20 years ago and i don't know if it's the same way in sarajevo as it was where i was But in America, if something happened 20 years ago, you've got a fence around it. You've got like cops around it, or at least in New York or LA, you've got like construction around it. It's like cordoned off. It may even have been built over. That is immediately made safe. You know, and and deintegrated with the city. Whereas like on Kirk, there's a beach. It's a beach town. Like people go and lay on the beach. And literally, like 15 feet from the beach, there's an abandoned building, a complex of abandoned buildings that are completely graffitied over, completely ripped apart. With like the copper and plumbing has been taken out of the walls by refugees 20 years ago. And there's no fence, there's no dogs, there's no security. You could just walk. Like, so those things are not, you know, there's not a war going on, but there is. No separation between that stuff and the regular city the way there would be if that had happened in New York. I don't know if it's the same way in Sarajevo, but that definitely struck me. Like there's people just like laying on the beach next to a, a fucking haunted house. Yeah, I think that's true. And it was all open. You know, that was weird. Yeah, one of the places
3: I went to in Sarajevo was where they had the Winter Olympics. Mm. Before the war, they made a park out of it so you could pay and ride the bobsled ride. But then that was all kind of destroyed during the war. So I wound up, that was kind of the most amazing architecture I saw in Sarajevo was like all these crazy structures they built for the Olympics, especially the bobsled track, You know, huge track all the way down the mountain, winding around. But now it's just in big concrete pieces like a piece here piece there really kind of beautiful in it's decay and completely covered in graffiti you know over a huge area and you could just walk
1: right up to it like are there fences or is there yeah yeah, no fences no nothing yeah i mean if you look at pictures of it it looks kind of amazing
2: this uh printmaking project did you do something with uh, lithography oh yes i started to
3: work with one of my professors from back in the corcoran who i'm still friends with he's a master printer and so i just did a first test print with him so i did a, a stone litho print i just did a small edition 10 prints
2: it's great that it's on stone
3: i don't at all want to release prints of my drawings but I do want to make prints. What's the reason you don't want to release prints? So I don't want to make copies of my drawings as prints. If I make prints, I want them to be prints. And I want to do stone litho, or I want to do engraving or etching rather than computer print of my drawing. So I've been working with this guy, Skip Barnhart, and I'm hoping to do a lot more of that in the future, both prints on stone and copper
2: they don't mine those stones anymore that's what makes it extra fun for me anyway a little more precious
1: you're slowly destroying the earth by making pictures
2: actually when i came <laughs> here skip was telling me
3: like oh the place they mine those litho stones is like right over near where you are you have to go visit the mine because <laughs> you know, it's only one place on earth they get those litho stones from Really? What is that place?
2: Someone told me recently they weren't mining them anywhere at all. I've been misinformed. Maybe they stopped doing
3: it, but it was only that place I heard. But he has plenty of stones. He has a whole room full (laughs) of stones, so. Oh good, we're safe.
1: Well, also you can like grind them down. Yeah, you can can always
3: reuse them. So it's a really
1: crappy, yeah. You kind of started showing with just drawings. And that's not always for everybody automatically realize that they can do that like they can make you know fine art by just drawing what artists gave you the idea that oh like i could just make drawings and not make comics and not be an illustrator and i could show these
3: yeah there is this kind of idea in the art world not exclusively but where drawing is like a side thing
1: yeah i mean i think like 2015 years ago definitely but less yeah. so since then
3: but there's really been nothing else for me like i, I learned to paint in school and everything else but From the time I was a little kid, I just really loved ink drawing and
1: I've always done ink drawing and I never wavered from that. But there weren't any other artists that you saw before and you're like, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. You're just like, I'm gonna do this and I hope somebody will buy one.
2: Yeah, it was more like that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I I remember being in art school and I made a bunch of black and white prints and I had a critique and Murray Zimile's, the printmaking head of, he came up to me and his whole critique, he said to me, color sells. (laughs) And that was it. And I was like, oh. But there is this
3: guy now, I didn't know about him. He's this Japanese artist who just makes these absurd colored ink drawings. Hmm. Like right now, he's in Wisconsin at a three-year residency program. And he's making one drawing over the course of the three-year residency. And I actually drove up to Wisconsin to see it. It's incredible. What's his name? Manabu Aikita, You you love an intricate drawing. This we know. I've got nothing on this guy. Okay. But also he has color.
1: I got to do that 100 Girls 100 Octopuses painting for nine months, maybe a year. Yeah. It's always like, if you're that kind of artist, like, oh, you'll take the massive project you can get. Like if somebody's like, Zach, we want you to do a 15-year picture and we're going to support you. And Mandy and whoever else all the way through that. I'll be like, all right, we'll take it. Like whatever the longest time span you can give me, I'd be like, Hmm, I could do that. Are you like that? Or are you like the drawing takes as long as it takes?
3: You know, like I remember like the first time I saw your work was at the uh, National Portrait Gallery. Oh god, yeah. And so I saw your drawing in there and I was like, what the fuck? Like I wouldn't think they would put a drawing like this in there the style of your work. I loved your work, but-
1: You were in there too.
3: Yeah, yeah. That kind of surprised me that they put my drawing in too, because I mean, I'd kind of seen the range they had from the year before, but that's a really kind
1: of rare competition. The National Portrait Gallery, they have like a lot of like classic portraits. Like they have like old modernist portraits like Gertrude Stein and stuff in there. And it's like one of the many free museums in DC, but it is generally not a big cutting edge museum. And then they started having this portrait contest. They contacted me specifically and they were like, We want you to be in the contest. I asked my gallery, I was like, should I do this? And they're like, if you win, good. If you don't, no one will ever know it's DC. Number one, I got a gajillion portraits. I don't have to like make a painting for this. And number two, it would just be like fun to be in a show there at home. You know, like someplace I had gone as a kid. There were a bunch of other artists who were kind of weird, who they had invited to do it. Like they had got Kent Williams, the guy who did like Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. Yeah. But then the stuff that won, this was like the Bush era, was like the most ridiculous apple pie stuff. Yeah,
3: really conventional,
1: yeah. Like, and I think the way it worked is like they're curators, they look at art all day. And they were like, We really, really, really want something interesting to be in this show. And but then the panel of judges is totally different people. Yeah. And so the thing that won was like a five-year-old boy with an ice cream, white boy, blonde hair in a blue field done with, like, in a 1940s realism style. I was like, what the fuck? Why are you asking us to go through all the hoops of entering this contest that you must have known no way could I have won with my, like, portrait of a stripper or whatever it was? Yeah. You were in it the next year. I bet you didn't win, but you were in the show. (laughs) That was such a DC experience. Yeah. We want to claim you. We want your diversity But just a little bit. Yeah, we want to show that that America loves you. Right, but not give you the blue ribbon. But yeah, the blue ribbon goes to this guy who did the blue-eyed white child with the blonde hair and the blue (laughs) field in the fucking Norman Rockwell style. It was strangely upsetting and creepy. They must have known that there's no way the guy making the fucking portrait out of skulls over here and the person who did the rayograph, like, you're not gonna win. But please, fill up the gallery. What was
3: your
2: portrait for that like, Ben?
3: When I did it, I was really surprised to get in because I was still in undergrad. It was really just kind of a strange drawing. It was a portrait of a woman, but with all these kind of weird creatures and things. I submitted it because it was the only portrait I had. I didn't make it specifically for that, but I'd never really had a show. So for me, it was big deal. I was like excited to get in and I thought there was no way that I would, but it was kind of that same experience. They put in things where I just really wouldn't expect them to have that wide of a
1: curatorial lens. Do you remember who
2: won that year? Conventional
1: Yeah. You can see that the curators are trying to push up against the edge of the space that they're put in. I remember another year in DC, there was supposed to be a big show, but they're like, we plan them out five years in advance, like a regular museum, but then every year Congress votes on our budget. Year to year, we have no idea what we're doing. I mean, that's just like one of the little ways that DC, it's this weird company town, and it's kind of a microcosm of problems that are way outside of DC. But so for example,
3: you know, like DC just bought one of my drawings that I never thought they would buy. It's a cityscape, but on the bottom, the most prominent thing is homeless
1: people, really kind of derelict. Yeah, it looks like New York or something in the background, and then there's a strip along the bottom.
3: And then on the top, it's like this nice cityscape. DC government has a program where they buy art. It's their official art collection. And they use this collection if their office buildings need art for the walls. And so I submitted my work and it's this drawing of homeless people and definitely not something somebody's going to put on their office wall, but they still bought it. So I was really kind of surprised. Well, I
1: mean, they figured out there's an election in November. The curators must feel like rats inside a maze because they're art people. I mean, even if they're very conservative curators. But yeah,
3: that's exactly what I was feeling like these curators of the program they know they're buying art for these offices and everything else at the same time they're really kind of on and i expected it to just be we'll buy what matches our office but it seems like they're interested in
1: a wider range of things than i would have expected they as people versus what they know the institution wants Yeah. You know, because it would be hard to get that far as an art bureaucrat without, number one, actually appreciating art on some level and kind of knowing the difference between good and bad. And number two, being good at dealing with how that has absolutely nothing to do with the way the federal government uses art. That kind of contrast between the institutional and the human.
2: Yeah. It must have been nice that you're at that residency. How long are you there? I've been here for a month and I'm going to be here for two more months. Nice.
3: Because it's a small village outside of Nuremberg, so there's really kind of nothing to distract me. You know, there's not even any kind of like stores or something in the village. It's really been drawing all day, every day. Are you making just one drawing? No, I'm making a series. What's it about? Well, the particular one I'm doing now, it's like a endless queue, people waiting in line.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm making my drawings a little
1: sparser now. Mm-hmm. When you draw people and you're just drawing them straight to ink, are you really, really careful about like getting pose and gesture right that first time? It seems like with that really clean line, it would be hard to sketch them up until they're standing in a, in a posture that makes sense.
3: You no, know, and especially because I don't really sketch them out in detail, like yeah. I really fuck them up a lot. Yeah. What I do is if I mess up, I take my X-Acto knife and just really carefully cut out the line cutting off the surface of the paper, just very carefully.
1: Some careful cheating. You scrape a layer of the paper off? Yeah. Wow.
3: I've got it down to an art where it works really well. I just take the X-Acto knife at a really low angle on one side of the line very carefully, and then on the other side of the line really carefully, and then I can just peel up the line. Does that happen often? When I ink it back over, you can't see it. Now I've just kind of incorporated that as a drawing tool as much as anything else. I do it a lot.
2: We're gonna look for it now.
1: Now you can kind of fuck up.
3: Yeah, because it's too much pressure if I can't, you know, like
1: (laughs) with the ink, you just can't fuck up. But it's really given me a way out of that. Should tell Sean McCarthy about that. I felt like I was getting a lot more work done once I figured out you could actually erase paint
3: I also erase my ink a lot. Hmm. If I need to lighten an area, if the shading's a little bit too dark, I'll just take my eraser to it and it'll take it, you know, one or two shades lighter, so I'll use that as a tool. Also. At
1: least online you can't tell like they look perfectly pristine. I don't know if I've ever seen one in real life. It works really
2: well. You, you can't really tell. So you're going to be at this remote place for three more months, just drawing 12 hours a day. Is this what we're understanding?
3: Yeah, I've been here a month already, so it'll be two more months, yeah. How are you
2: feeling about this idea of solitude and just drawing all day for 12 hours a day and not seeing anybody and no stores?
3: I just went to uh, Vienna, met a guy in Vienna, and then I went to Prague. Um, There's a guy from D.C. who's traveling through Europe, too, so I met him in Prague, so... I was definitely getting to the point where I needed to get out, but I, I took a kind of little trip around and now I'm back at um, it.
2: How long were you working at it before you were like, I got to get out of here? Uh,
3: well, that was a month I've been here so far, but I really can keep going. I don't know what it is, but I, once I get into drawing, I can just do it all day. I hope so. I never get tired of it. It's just what I love. And
2: Are you listening to music or podcasts or audio books or is it all, was it all quiet? No, I need
3: something else going on. You know, because it's such a large amount of time, I always have to kind of find something new, you know? So originally it was usually just music, but then I would get sick of all my music because I'd be in the studio for such large periods of time. Now it's audiobooks a lot. I listen to a lot of audiobooks.
1: Which one are you doing right now?
3: I just finished listening to The Silent Planet, Okay. which
1: is a C.S. Lewis science fiction book from the 1930s. Okay. I know him a little bit, but I've never heard of that one. I didn't know they had an audio book of it.
3: Yeah, I didn't know he made any any space books.
1: But a lot of what I'll do is, is non-fictional. If I'm
3: interested in a particular subject, I'll just find a bunch of books about it, go through that subject, and
1: then my interest will go to something else. So I went through a lot of like, science books. It's good to find good ones because once in a while you'll get one and it's like, Everyone who draws a lot at a table knows everything about audiobooks in the world. I, I would get these ones who are like, well, how far away is the sun? Let's explain. <laughs> it's just the narrator alone, and you're like, fuck, I spent six bucks for nothing. This, fuck this guy. Like, you've ruined this book. Like, it would be a good book, too. And you're just like, no.
2: Um, I'm listening to the Wright brothers narrated by the guy that did the Civil War. He's like that old grandpa voice. So then the Wright brothers set to work. highly recommend it to everybody
1: the best audiobook i ever heard was jeremy irons doing lolita yeah he's just such a really good narrator they put out all the james bond books uh the original ian flemings with different actors doing each one and they're they're pretty good anyway do you have any
2: recommendations for us ben of what we should listen to history wise the one book i listened to
3: recently which i really loved was it's called the, the Universe in a Single Atom, mm-hmm. and it's the Dalai Lama's Autobiography. That sounds good. It's so interesting because it's actually a science book. It's the Dalai Lama's Autobiography, but it's a science book at a really high level, like string theory, quantum mechanics. The Dalai Lama had a lot of the top physicists actually
1: teach him science and so it's really kind of fascinating book. I wonder if the Dalai Lama that wrote that and the Dalai Lama who tweets like, just be happy about things. Things are there. Like, is the same dude.
3: <laughs> no, this book it's really in depth. It's really good.
1: Huh, that's cool. Well, Justin, you can cut this whole part out with, about audiobooks. So Ben listens to audiobooks just like the rest of us while he draws. <laughs> And he likes history and science. You gotta find some way to get through those hours. The thing about music is that, like, a lot of times it's going faster than the pace of what you're drawing. Like, it's doing one thing and you're doing this. Uh. you listen to fast music though you gotta listen to some brian eno you don't have to listen to
0: some
1: brian eno i mean it's really good sometimes it's just in a place that you're not you know
3: yeah right yeah
1: and also you do get sick of your music and then you get sick of going on youtube and finding new music every every four minutes it's a hellhole like this is the worst job ever it's really hard to just sit at a desk and draw like people you gotta understand this is we're like down in the trenches for you Okay, so here's the thing. I feel like you've been very generous with your time, and you've told us a lot of interesting stuff. On the other hand, I had to ask like, a very specific stupid question to trip over the fact that like the police took all your art and they sent cops to every single bus station in America to try to find you because you have like some kind of contagion or something. So is there anything else really weird about your life that mm. you're hiding from us or about your mm. art that I, we haven't asked a question about. And now the problem with this question is that you'll have to go, now whatever I say, I've just built it up a whole lot and I just say something mildly interesting and I look like a rube, but we'll edit out the part where I ask that stuff so it won't be built out. But is there anything else that we could talk about here?
3: I don't know if I can top the, the cops taking all my sketchbooks. <laughs> Maybe I should have finished with that one. It <laughs> really kind of gets a lot less interesting when you're just spending 12 hours a day every day drawing. The monotony of life, in a way, has become what my drawings are about more than anything else now. Well, capitalism will
1: do that to you. Indeed. You have been fantastic, Ben. Thank you for being on the show.
3: Well, thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you guys. No,
2: oh, yeah. Thank you. For sure. Thanks for listening
0: to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest Ben Tallman's latest work at a solo exhibition opening June 23rd at Jonathan Levine Gallery in New York. Also, John will be performing his 3D shadow puppet show titled I'm Worried on March 24th at the Drawing Center New York City. And Zach has a solo show called A Thousand and One Nights. There's an opening on April 19th from 6 to 8 p.m. And this all takes place at Frederick's and Fraser Gallery in New York City. The show will be up for a month, so check it out while it lasts.
2: If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page. At Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell
0: a friend. And don't forget, we have a Patreon. Please consider becoming a patron. Then you will be one of our supporters with your donations. You'll get exclusive episodes, t shirts, stickers, all sorts of great things. Don't forget, we have that exclusive episode coming up this month about Black Panther comics. Go to patreon.com backslash Weed we Art.
2: Weed Art. is produced by By Pepin and Mnemonic Recordings.
0: Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. With help from Colin Wild's and
1: Ben Tallman, Ben Tallman, Ben Tallman, Ben Tallman. Drawer, Ben Tallman. Artist, Ben Tallman. We talked to Ben Tallman. Ben Tallman from Washington, D.C. I'm Zach, and this is John, and Ben Tallman is joining us. He lives in Washington, DC, but he's joining us from Germany right now. All right, you need you. is that good?
0: That's good. We can try to get
1: Chewie and train him to say that. Chewy doesn't talk. He's a dog.